This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 12th of June 2021 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next half an hour, our regular guest, Vincent McAvinney, will join me to review the day's newspapers. We'll cross to Finland to hear about the Helsinki Biennale. Also ahead, Monocle's Andrew Muller on what we learned this week. So we learned that all we need to do to preserve our planet for future generations is move the moon. And what if the perfect pampering package came through your mailbox once a month with a carefully chosen book, beauty products, tea and delicious things to eat? Well, we'll meet the woman who can make it happen. All that coming up on Monocle on Saturday here on Monocle 24. G7 leaders are currently meeting in Cornwall in the UK and have said that they will commit to using all their resources in an effort to ensure the devastation caused by a pandemic like COVID-19 is never repeated. The aim is to slash the time needed to develop vaccines to under 100 days. In the United States, lawmakers have introduced five bills aimed at limiting the power held by big tech companies. This comes after a 16-month investigation into the powers of Amazon, Apple, Google and Facebook and could lead to them being forced to sell some assets. Agnes Chow, the prominent pro-democracy activist from Hong Kong, has been released from prison early. She'd served nearly seven months of her 10-month term. She and her fellow activists Joshua Wong and Ivan Lam were jailed last year for their role in protests in 2019. And in our weekend edition bulletin, what hidden meanings are implicit in a national football kit? Can a walk along the coast really be boosted by a brooding alpaca? We'll find out in this week's newsletter. For your own copy, head to monocle.com forward slash minute. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, it's time now to have a browse through this morning's newspapers. And I'm joined today by Vincent McAvinney, who's a reporter and Monocle 24's regular UK politics commentator. It's so lovely to have you back in the studio. It's great to be back. Still feels like a novelty, doesn't it? <laughs> and unfortunately, it looks like it's going to be the state for some time. I mean, the, Briti- the, the British papers are reporting that lockdown probably yes. isn't going to end. Yeah, this has been well trailed this week. I mean, I was reporting on Wednesday when basically Rishi Sunak got out ahead of the rest of the government, the Chancellor here, and let it be known that he would be willing to let it go for another four weeks. Uh, this so-called Freedom Day, which was set for the 21st of June, uh, and the Treasury briefing out that, you know, this is why we in the budget, we let the, a, the, the sort of support programmes run long because of a problem like this. The latest data on the Delta variant, which originated in India, is that it is as much as 60% more transmissible within a household on the Kent variant, which was even more transmissible than the original var- uh, you know, uh, COVID that came here. So it's very clear that because that number is creeping up now, the government will have a meeting this week between Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, Matt Hancock, the Health Secretary, and Michael Gove. Uh, and then possibly Sunday night, Monday morning, will come out and announce a delay to that lockdown day. I'm a little bit confused, though, about what it is that we're not allowed to do, because right now we can go into shops, we can go into restaurants, 
restaurants, uh, entertainments opening up again. Well, this is from the very start. There were questions as to whether the the twenty first, what was going to happen, was the right thing to do until the vaccination program had been completed, because it is a lifting of all restrictions. So it was essentially tr- saying, you know, social distancing can go out the window, mask wearing can go out the window. So there are still restrictions. You know, if you're in a restaurant, you can't, or a bar, you can't stand up at the moment at a bar. You have to be seated, which means you've got to do the reservations. Things are brought to you rather than you going up. So there are some still restrictions on that. Restrictions on numbers for big events, concerts, sports stadiums, uh, things like that. So there are still some lingering restrictions, but it's effectively saying that life can go back to normal. Yeah. Uh, Let's go to the big story that's, of course, dominating the papers across the world, and that is the G7 currently ongoing in Cornwall. I was absolutely astounded by uh, Johnson's remarks yesterday, saying we're all in perfect harmony over Northern Ireland. Uh, And of course, they're not. And Macron, I think, is going to make his displeasure known today. Yeah, they're not. Um, And I think for the Conservatives over the last few years, I mean, you can understand why the troubles went on for so long and were so awful um, when the Conservative Party over the last couple of years has shown a complete misunderstanding of Irish politics, of the situation in Northern Ireland continuously. Uh, And Boris Johnson, a lot of the blame lies with him. He promised things to the DUP, the Unionist Party, which currently holds power in Northern Ireland, that he knew he couldn't deliver, that there wouldn't have to be border anywhere. He said to them in a meeting, uh, you know, that he held with their leadership and supporters, if anyone ever makes you sign a customs form for sending stuff to Great Britain, bring it to me and we'll tear it up. And, you know, that is not the case, because to avoid a border between the Republic and Northern Ireland, which wouldn't have worked, I mean, there are more crossing points than the entire eastern flank of the EU. You can be, you know, my family are from a border county, you can drive on a road in Northern Ireland, and it the, the, the border zigzags the road because of the way it was drawn and you can be driving, you know, and, and the, the road signs will suddenly change colour and that's the only way that you know you're in the north versus the Republic. So obviously that border had to be put at the uh, in the sea and so that the ports were the checking points and that has come under real attack from unionists. So the problem is that this is what the British agreed to. This is what they agreed to in the protocol, and now they're trying to renege on it. They're trying to go around the world and say Britain is a great place for business. We've got this world-famous justice system. We respect rules and laws, and we want to do all these deals with you. Deals with countries at this G7. Big deals they've got to sign with America. The Australians are invited as well. The Indians are invited. Uh, you know, And they've you know, got to say to these people, we'll play with a straight bat, we'll agree these terms and we'll stick by them. We can't do that when the European Union is here saying, hold on a second, you're already trying to get out the deal we're done. And if you're Joe Biden himself, who very clearly identifies as an Irish American, it is, you know, there's a famous clip of him uh, walking past a media line where someone calls out BBC, BBC, and he just says, I'm Irish and walks by. You know, he very much thinks, and the US was a guarantor in, you know, as much as Britain was of the Good Friday Agreement, that the UK is playing too fast and too loose with peace in Northern Ireland. Absolutely. What else is happening at the G7? How are the papers reporting it? Well, the first day yesterday was all about the economics. So it was about this build back better agenda. Um, And what was interesting is actually, and a couple of the British papers pulled this out, you know, there is this great rivalry between Boris Johnson and David Cameron 
camera and going back to their school and university days. And Boris appears to have used the G7 on the economic front to try and bash David Cameron and his own party's policy of austerity because he's talked about mistakes being made after 2008 and that we shouldn't, you know, taper off any kind of support. And, you know, that's a manifesto that he got back into Parliament on in, in 2015. But he now seems to be, you know, putting in some blows saying, you know, there is a consensus that is clear from yesterday that all the governments are still saying stimulus, 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 which is very different to what we heard from 2010 onwards when it was all austerity, austerity, austerity. Um, so that is it. And, you know, Boris gave these kind of unwieldy remarks. You know, this is a big opportunity. He is a globally known. You know, I was quite struck a couple of weeks ago when we were in the flat scandal story about the cost that had been paid for the designer. I was standing next to a Spanish reporter and my Spanish is very rusty. But I was listening to and I was like, I'm sure he's talking about the flat and furniture because I thought he was there talking about, you know, Northern Ireland or something else. And I turned and I asked him, I was like, are you really talking about Boris Johnson's flat on prime time Spanish news? And they're like, oh, yes, we're obsessed with Boris and Spain. And, you know, he is a bit of a global star from his time as, as mayor of London. And this is his big turn on the world stage and to get the G7 at home. He's made it very, you know, Carbis Bay is a place that's very special to him and his family. It's quite a weird place logistically for this meeting to be happening. Um, but, you know, his wieldy, unwieldy remarks at the top were very much, you know, there are suggestions that a lot that Carrie Simmons, Carrie now Johnson, his wife, is a big force behind the scenes. And the remarks yesterday about rebuilding a more equal economy and there's got to be provisions to make it gender balanced. And he even he just sounded like he didn't really know what he was talking about <laughs> when he was making those remarks. Uh, there's so much news about this and so much we could unpick around the G7. I just wanted to talk a little bit about Joe Biden and the fact that he's probably expected in a local church tomorrow, isn't he? Yeah, that's right. Joe Biden is a very, uh, you know, devout Catholic. And he does take sacraments uh, every week. If he can't go on a Sunday, he gets it on Saturday evening, which is permitted by the Catholic Church. Um, and we all know his kind of history of personal family tragedy and, and why his faith is kind of important to him. And so he will be probably uh, appearing at a Catholic church uh, at some point tomorrow. He does have the meetings of G7 are going on today and tomorrow, but he's also seeing uh, the Queen tomorrow at a meeting one-on-one in Windsor Castle. But he is going to make some time, we think, to go to a Catholic church. But this is really, I found this just fascinating as a, a lapsed Catholic myself. So there is a um, meeting of Catholic United States bishops, of which there are over 250 uh, this week, and some on the conservative wing are attacking Joe Biden, saying uh, that uh, he is an apostate and that he is uh, gravely morally evil because he supports abortion and that he should not only be blocked from receiving communion, but he should be excommunicated from the Catholic Church, which is, you know, the most Catholic thing ever, that you finally get your second president and you can't even let him have six months without trying to kick him out of the church and guilt <laughs> him. Um, so, yeah, I just think it's quite remarkable. But a letter has come from the Vatican uh, telling the US bishops not to rush any debate. It will be down to his local bishops in Washington and Delaware who have said, you know, they're obviously close friends with Joe Biden. They've said we're, we're not going to do this. But it is a sign that, you know, the culture wars, the, the political fights in the US are, are seeping into the Catholic Church. And, you know, as, as someone who... Um, you know, I grew up when a lot, there was a lot of Catholic hypocrisy, and I would say to these bishops, "And when will you take action against all your, you know, clergy and all your, uh, all your flock who support the death penalty?" Because you know you're picking and choosing here which Absolutely. lives are important. Yeah, uh, Vinny, do stay with us because we're going to return to the papers a little bit later on in the show. Uh, so that was Vincent McAvinny. As I say, he's going to be hanging around with us for a while, and this is Monocle Twenty Four. Now, 
it's a big day in Helsinki as the first ever Biennale opens today. Our correspondent in the city, Petri Burtsoff, joins me now. Uh, hello to you, Petri. Hi, good morning. Uh, now, why has Helsinki decided to launch this new art event? Well, I suppose uh, one reason is that Helsinki has not really had a large-scale art event like this before. Um, you know, it has a famous music festival, the Flow Festival. It has the Love and Anarchy um, movie festival. It has concerts, but nothing, nothing like this related to art. So, so the idea was definitely to boost the city's uh, sort of art credentials internationally. But I think the second reason is that Helsinki wants people to go, uh, go out and, and discover the 300 islands that it has off the coast of Helsinki. Uh, it's even, you know, they wrote this in the city's official strategy. And, and you know, what better way to attract people to, to the islands than a nice free of charge art exhibition. Mm. Uh, so that, I guess, is the defining thing that makes Helsinki's Biennale different from Biennales that happen all over the world. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I've interviewed the um, Biennale's director and she was really adamant um, about uh, stressing the fact that it's not aimed only at the so-called art elite, sort of like the uh, Venice Biennale or events like Art Art Basel. You know, it's, it's for everyone. It's completely free of free of charge and, and sort of all about public art in, in various parts of the city, but then focused on, on this one island location of, of Valisad, which is actually quite a special place. And I think that's another factor that makes it, makes it different, this uh, former military island, which provides kind of an edgy backdrop to all the art. Mm. Now, it opens today, but you've actually had a look at it already. What were the highlights for you? Well, whew, so many highlights. Um, I really like, um, as I said, it's on this on this island out out in the open, and I really like. There's a German artist, uh, Alicia Quade. She had a sculpture there, which she installed on this um, narrow peninsula connecting two islands, and and you know she put a mirror in there and boulders, and and it just works with the sea in a really really spectacular fashion. Then there was a sound installation that I also enjoyed by the uh, Canadian artist duo Janet Cardiff and George Miller. In, in which the audience basically sits on these tree stumps in the middle of a of a forest, this kind of a magical forest, and hears all kinds of nice sounds. And among them was a piece composed by one of my favorite composers, Estonia's uh, Arvo Pat. So that was also another highlight. It sounds absolutely extraordinary. Um, Petri, how long does this go on for? It goes on until the end of September, um, and it's open... It's open, I think, most days of, of the week. And I mean, um, it's, it's completely, as I said, completely free of charge on, on an island that everybody can, can get to. So, you know, the aim is really to get, they're aiming for 300,000 visitors. Um, they're hoping also to attract a lot of international visitors. Mm -hmm. uh, and what does it mean for Helsinki's standing in the global art world? Well, I think, I mean, I've chatted with uh, some international artists who take part in the Biennale, and many of them actually said that, you know, Helsinki is not really known as an, as an art city. You know, it's known for its architecture, the Finnish design and so on, but not for, the, not for art. And, and so, you know, now that the, all these international artists are here, they've realized how much great art there actually is and how many great galleries and so on. So I think it's been a PR problem mostly, mostly for Helsinki and, and Finland. And, you know, a large-scale event such as this with hundreds of thousands of visitors will, will, will definitely help with uh, getting more publicity to the, to the art scene. Yeah. Uh, Petri, before you go, I just wanted to, to touch on a, a political story, which is, of course, uh, Finland often sort of described as in, in the shadow of Russia. Of course, there are lots of very uh, close connections between the two countries. Uh, Putin's been hitting the headlines recently. Uh, how's, how's Putin's remarks and, and sort of current stance uh, being reported in Finland? 
Well, it's it's uh, it's always a really fine balancing act between Finland and Russia, of course, given given the history, and especially now uh, after the after the annexation of Crimea, Finland and also the other Nordic countries have been following Russia's uh, politics really closely, and especially that that which uh, Vladimir Putin says. So you know we are really 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 closely closely following his words, and you know just to to give one example, you know with this uh, meeting. Uh, with uh, Joe Biden, you know, Finland is really, I mean, um, the public broadcaster is doing doing, doing uh, hours and hours of live programming, just sort of following what Putin will say. And, and um, yeah, we, we, we do keep a close, close ear on that. Yeah. Petri, thank you very much indeed. That was Petri Burtsov joining us from Helsinki. And just to pick up off the, off the back of that, uh, Vincent, uh, NBC got a, an interview with Putin. Uh, how's that being reported? Yeah, that's right. So as, as was mentioned there, Joe Biden will meet Vladimir Putin on Wednesday in Geneva, which also played host to Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev, where they famously agreed to uh, lower the number of, of nuclear weapons that they had. But we're not expecting any agreement at this meeting. And, and Putin has gone out in advance uh, and gave an interview last night uh, to NBC News in which he says that US-Russia relations are at their lowest point in years. He's also lavished praise on to Donald Trump saying uh, that he was, uh, you know, colourful, that he was an extraordinary individual, talented individual, so obviously heaping on that praise. He describes Joe Biden as being a, a career politician. Uh, and, you know, this is something Trump, we heard this week, was mocking Joe Biden, saying, you know, don't fall asleep in the meeting and also went as far as to say that he trusted Vladimir Putin again over his intelligence services. And, it, you know, that meeting in Helsinki still raises huge questions about what was said because there were no handlers in there. There's a great, there's a Dixie Chicks song uh, called March March and there's a disappointment where they yell what the hell happened in Helsinki because that is what most people in the US want to know where, you know, it's whatever went on and I think Joe Biden's team will have tried to speak to the translator who was in that meeting just to say you need to disclose to us what was said because we still don't know and in that meeting, you know, Donald Trump walked out and said that he believed Russia when it came to election interference over his own intelligence agency. If any other... You know, could you imagine the outcry if Barack Obama had said that? He would have been called a traitor and they would have tried to impeach him. But, you know, Joe Biden is going to have to discuss all of the events of the past couple of years, uh, ransomware attacks coming from Russia, aggression in Ukraine, jailing of dissidents, uh, you know, like Navalny. It is going to be quite the meeting. Um, We're still not clear kind of what the format will be afterwards, whether there'll be press conferences or whether they'll just leave. Uh, But it is going to be definitely one to watch. And it comes after Joe Biden has a meeting on Monday and Tuesday at NATO in Brussels, where the rest of the alliance are going to look for reassurance after four years of Trump denigration that its strongest partner is still very much firm in NATO, because that is what keeps Russia in check. And so we'll see uh, just how strong in advance of that meeting Joe Biden is in his support of the alliance. Absolutely. Well, now let's have a look at what else we uh, have learned this week. We learned this week of the atrocious possibility that this weekend's G7 summit might be overshadowed by a continental contretemps over sausages. Off to a flying start with the sound effects this week. Four 
Before we learned that the post-Brexit UK's apparent desire to end up at war with its former EU partners for the silliest reason imaginable is apparently unslaked by the other week's near-skirmishing off Jersey with the French over fish. Hang on, maybe we should have used a naval battle clip there, not a cavalry charge? But I was trying to maintain the theme established uh, with the bugle call at the top. Come on. <laughs> just get on with it. Maybe just go back to the sausages. We learned that UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, and no, that phrase still doesn't sound like a thing which has actually happened, has threatened to override the Brexit treaty in order that shops in Northern Ireland may continue to sell British sausages. We did learn when we looked into it that other goods are involved as well, but sausages are just inherently amusing. It's one of the rules. We also learned that a compromise on sausages is probably within reach, so there's no need to fear the worst. Thank you. But we have also learned again of the possibility that Boris Johnson's entire political career is perhaps some sort of post-postmodern attempt to satirise satire, evidence for which proposition may be found in a 1984 episode of Yes Minister. The Europeans have gone too far. They are now threatening the British sausage. They want to stand it up, by which they mean they'll force the British people to eat salami and garlic-ridden, greasy foods. Continuing with the theme of conflict being stoked by unorthodox means and or for unlikely reasons... We learned that Ukraine perceive the imminent European football championships as an opportunity for what is, in fairness, some absolutely top-notch trolling. Maestro, the national anthem of Ukraine. They've earned it this week. We learned that Ukraine's team will wear a smart yellow and blue jersey subtly inlaid with the outline of Ukraine's borders, which not so subtly includes the peninsula of Crimea, which is technically and legally part of Ukraine, but which you will recall being invaded a few years back by Russian-speaking soldiers carrying Russian weapons and driving Russian vehicles which began their journeys in Russia and which Russia denied knowing anything about. We then learned, as Ukraine's football authorities surely knew, that there is no force of nature so reliable or predictable as Russia's willingness to leap at bait. We learned that Russia has gone whining to UEFA about Ukraine's kit, and that Russia's foreign ministry spokesperson Maria Zakharova had issued a picturesquely aggrieved statement, as will now be intoned by our Russian grievances desk chief, Paige Reynolds. Ukraine's football team has attached Ukraine to Russia's Crimea. The explanation is as metaphysical as the agonising artistic liberty itself. It is to cheer up the players. Too bad they have to pin their hopes on this only. The technique is not new. It is called trompe-l'oeil, or an art technique used to make an illusion of the impossible, or, on the contrary, picturing something non-existing as though it can be touched. We've spent quite a lot of this week fiddling with the Euros fixture predictor to see if Russia and Ukraine could actually end up playing each other. It doesn't seem to be possible before what would be, let's face it, an unlikely final. Oh.
If it does happen, however, we can only hope that Russia buys all the way into the bit by issuing a solemn statement denying that the team wearing Russian uniforms are anything to do with Russia. And... You got me chasing rabbits, walking on my hands and howling at the moon. We learned that climate change has been fixed. We learned that the US Republican Party, though hitherto not known for an interest in the issue, has put its best and brightest on it. Step forward Texas Congressman Louis Gohmert, whose previous exercises in creative thinking have included attempting to sue former Vice President Mike Pence in order to overturn the results of last year's presidential election for some reason. We learned that Congressman Gohmert is undaunted by having been laughed out of a Texas courtroom by a Trump-appointed judge on that occasion and has an idea that he wishes to run by the U.S. National Forest Service and Bureau of Land Management. Is there anything that the National Forest Service or BLM can do to uh, change the course of the moon's orbit or the Earth's orbit around the sun? Obviously, that would have profound effects on our climate. So we learned that all we need to do to preserve our planet for future generations is move the moon. We think we understand why Congressman Gohmert might reckon this isn't that big an ask, and in arriving at that understanding, have learned that there really is always someone worse off, specifically the congressional aide right now massaging their temples as they prepare to explain to Congressman Gohmert that no, the moon isn't actually made of cheese. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Now, the loveliest package came through my door yesterday, perfectly designed to fit through the letterbox, so no anxious wait for the post. It contained a beautifully curated box of treats, everything one needs to unwind. It's the brainchild of Alice Revel of Ampersand, who joins me and Vincent now. Alice, welcome. Thanks. Uh, now, I'm just going to... Ben, you, ben, you haven't seen this. I'm just going to open my box because it's beautiful. It's all wrapped in tissue paper. Uh, and at the top, you've got um, some uh, eye masks, two eye masks there. Um, then this wonderful book, Latitudes of Longing by Shibangi Swaroop, uh, Indian author. Um, and we're going to talk about that a little bit in a moment. We've got Cape Malay Chai. We've got... Lovely scented candle. I think you can smell the whole studio smells of it. <laughs> it's now. sandalwood, so it's actually sort of inspired by the book. Kind we'll of bring you a bit of the ambiance of the book. And a treat, a waffle. <laughs> I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, listen, what a lovely box. So tell us about this. What is it and why? So I was always a real bookworm as a kid and then you get busy and you're busy with work and social engagements and I would find I became this person that would only read on holiday and I hated that because I'd always been this voracious reader and I'd sort of be berating myself on the plane back, you know, having devoured three books in a week and ignored everybody, saying to myself, you know, you've, if you like doing something and it's a bit of a challenge, then you have to make an effort to do it and there's no reason why you can't. And then, you know, I'd sort of start off with the best of intentions and then social engagements and late nights and I just find that I was not reading anymore. And I think there's lots of people who are in the same situation. You know, you never speak to anybody and... 
they say, oh, you know, I, oh, I wish I wish I could read less books. <laughs> and people, Possibly me. <laughs> yourself, yourself accepted. Um, and, you know, people do have time. It's quite preposterous that they think they don't have time because, you know, let's face it, they have time to create a Pinterest board for their fantasy wedding and, you know... <laughs> watch people being yeah, told on I Twitter mean, and learn complex dances to do on TikTok. So, you know. I think, yeah, I'm I'm definitely someone that now used to read loads, now it is on holidays. And I think, well, why did I, you know, go to this great place if I'm not, you know, going out and enjoying it all the yeah. time if I'm sitting and reading it, but enjoying that. But I think the thing that shocks me is, you know, that report that your phone gives you at the end of the week oh, where God. it's like, you spend X hours on I Instagram or whatever. I'm like, okay, well, that could have been better spent <laughs> reading a book, couldn't it? Yeah. Anyway, you came up with a solution. Yeah, so I think, you know, in a way, it's really not astounding that people find it a challenge to read. You know, there's no social validation in reading. There's no neat pat on the head that a book gives you. And that's what social media does. You know, it's designed to be addictive. And a book is something which requires quite a lot of your effort to put in. You know, books are rarely going to grab you on page one, let's face it. So, you know, it does require some time and concentration and... We love to multitask, and you can't multitask a book. Um, you can maybe, you know, have a glass of wine at the same time or sit in the bath, but essentially, you know, we find it really hard to concentrate. And I think it's also compounded by the fact that there's so much choice in terms of books. You know, whether you go on Amazon, which you can't even browse, or you go into a branch of, you know, any well-known booksellers, there's so much there that it's hard to know even where to start. And I say that as somebody who receives a load of books. I go into, you know, a branch of Waterstones and I'm just like, wow, okay, I can't decode. I can't decode what's new, what's good, what's on special offer. It's impossible to kind of really filter through that. So the idea with Reposed is that it's sort of a bit of a monthly gentle nudge, a prompt comes through the door, so it's very practical to really, and I hate the term self-help, self-care, all those things, but to take some time for yourself. So by adding the other things, um, it's creating an experience around the book. So obviously we would always include something like a hot drink, a snack, beauty product, these kinds of things, so that when people receive it, it feels like an invitation to spend some time reading, to spend some time maybe switching off, put your phone away, maybe. <laughs> um, and, you know, kind of have that experience of enjoying reading again. And obviously the fact that it comes each month, it's then that sort of gentle nudge of, you know, hey, remember, you, you like reading and here's a sort of whole evening in curated for you to make that easier. Um, we also have... A number of other subscription boxes, including Books Plus Beer, which is a book plus two craft beer. Um, timely plug in time for Father's Day. <laughs> <laughs> which, so with that one, you get a choice of non-fiction or crime. It's always just, pub just published books, um, always in paperback, so that they're easy to carry around. And then you get two craft beer from an independent brewery. And the idea is that it's, again, a sort of night in boxed. Yeah, and how wonderful. So you don't actually have to be worried about choosing the book or anything. There People it all comes. love that. Yeah. yeah. And, and and you sort of theme them. I mean, I, as you were saying, this, the sandalwood yeah. goes with the with the book by an Indian author and so on. Yeah, well, there's. I mean, there's so many book subscription boxes out there, which I think a lot of people don't realise. There's tons of them. But I would say 99.9% .9 of them tend to either just have a book or they have a book and then what 
people would call merch. So it's sort of themed um, stickers or notepads or stationery and these kinds of things. And I mean, I, I liked that stuff when I was a teenager, maybe. But, you know, <laughs> there's no sort of real purpose for it alongside the book. Whereas obviously what we try and do is you'll never sort of find random irrelevant things in there. It's yeah. things to kind of make that experience of reading more interactive, more exciting, you know, to really create a kind of moment for yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's beautifully done um, and something, obviously, that, that, that I enjoyed. Uh, but tell me about the digital side of it because people can actually connect with other people yep. who, who... So we have a Facebook group where people can come and discuss the book and it's really interesting, actually. It's all... Do, Every single book divides opinion. Um, you know, there's always people who absolutely love it, you know, race through it a weekend, and then there's people who, you know, couldn't get past page 10. Um, I think we rarely have people get in touch and say that they've already read the book because, as I said, it's, you know, books which have just been published. Um, and with the price of Repose, so it's from... £12.80 a month. So when you kind of factor in that a book's £9, you know, if there's one out of 12 books that you don't like, it's not the end of the world. It's pretty good yeah. value. Yeah, mm. yeah. It sounds excellent. So how can people get involved? So they can sign up on repose.co um, and we have a kind of rolling subscription or you can buy three months, six months, quarterly subscription or a year, um, which are all incredibly popular in terms of gifts. Um, and for both Books for Spear and Reposed, we also have a gift service where you can curate your book box. So we've got a huge, huge selection of books, chocolates, tea, face masks, treats, you name it. Of course, beer and snacks for Books for Spear so that you can basically compose your perfect gift and um, we'll add in a nice gift card and you can send it to somebody. So. How lovely. Alice, thank you so much. That's Alice Revel and uh, reposed.co uh, is where you can go to find out more about that. Uh, just before we go, a brief hit on the Tokyo Olympics because it really is all falling apart, Vincent. Yeah, I mean, they're meant to start next month. They're deeply unpopular in Japan now. There are calls to just simply cancel the event because you can't delay it once again about billions of pounds that will have been invested in it. But there are, you know, there's two stories that are in the FT today. Uh, there are thousands of volunteers who are in the volunteer arm. This is something they did in London. I had friends that did it that loved it. They were games makers. And there were 110,000 of them. And over uh, 12,000 have now quit uh, because of the you know, unpopularity of the games, the fact there won't actually be people coming to, to spectate. And they also discovered that there were people being paid to do the same kind of jobs, that job adverts had gone out. But the other thing as well that businesses are having to do, and, you know, sponsorship of the Olympics now runs into the billions for the Olympics. These companies pay hundreds of millions of pounds to be able to sponsor it. Uh, but there are now having to be uh, damage control consultants brought in for brands who fear damage from the Tokyo Olympics of having their association with it because of how unpopular it is in uh, in Japan. That is you know, just such an extraordinary turn of events for one of the world's biggest platforms. Absolutely. Thank you so much uh, for coming in, Vincent, and uh, Alice, who's still with us. I think we should bring the programme to a close now so we can play with my new repose box. <laughs> we'll go through it now and perhaps even eat the, the, the treat in there. Uh, many thanks also to our studio engineer, Nora Hull. Uh, I'm Georgina Godwin and Monocle on Saturday returns at the same time next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you.